back in the saddle. Uh, so, uh, two readings for today, and uh, apologies in advance, they're long. So, uh, Exodus 4, 8 through 11, and then we're going to jump to John, like, 8 and 9. So, Exodus 4, 8 through 11. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I've never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? It is not I. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, and I will help you speak and teach you what to say. All right, and then uh, John 8, we'll start with 31, read through 39, and then 9, oh geez, I don't know, 1 through 6, then 24 through 34. So John 8. If you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. I am telling you that I have been, er, what I have seen in the Father's presence, and uh, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus, then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. You are doing the works of your own father. We are not illegitimate children, they protested. The only father we have is God himself. And then 9, 1 through 5. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happens that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is the day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man washed and came home seeing. And then finally, 24 through 34. They summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. But he replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. They asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you do not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciple. We are the disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as far as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this were not from God, he could do nothing. All right, so long passages for sure. I want to talk about Exodus motifs in the New Testament to tie it into some of the awesome stuff Trey's doing. So I'll do like two of these and 
someday I'll get back to love, but uh, trail tape back over. I toyed with calling this one he to me, or to be gender neutral, he, she to I, uh, but pronouns get so confusing these days, so I'll talk about that when I get towards the end. You all know the basic outlines of the Exodus story. So God's people stray, they fall into unfreedom, and God sends a liberator who sets them free. And of course, in the end, God's people will likely become unfree again until they're finally set free uh, and by uh, the kind of ultimate liberator who liberates them not only from a tyrant or from an enslaver, but from the orders of sin and death. This is a story about liberation that goes much deeper than just casting off an oppressive ruler. Or maybe it's a tweak on who the most oppressive ruler is. It, in some way, the story of Exodus is the foundational Christian story. It's a story that ties together sin, slavery, membership in God's community, membership in God's family, and freedom. So this week I want to focus on blindness, though, uh, and a little bit about slavery, and then next week we'll dig in a little more on slavery, and I think Trey's back the first week in August. All right, so the story around John 9 which is the healing of the blind man, the kind of central story there. It, it actually begins with this argument that Jesus has about Exodus with the Pharisees in John 8. And, uh, you know, at first glance, this kind of cycle in John 8 and doesn't, John 9 doesn't seem super connected to Exodus. But there are these nuggets in there that when you read the story closely, it really makes the point of both the Exodus narrative and John 9 pop. So the little segment from John 8 is an argument about Exodus with the Pharisees. And like, I don't know, the first thing that probably jumps out to you, note the irony of them saying, we are descendants of Abraham and we have never been anyone's slaves. I mean, come on, right? Israel's been in slavery a bunch of times and these guys, though not slaves, are basically dominated by Rome. They were in there kind of for political purposes, bless you. Uh, yeah, And uh, they've forgotten their history. But, you know it would really shake up their understanding of their history and their position to admit that Jesus could set them free because it would somehow imply that they were unfree. It would shake things up. But the important thing about the argument in Exodus 8 is the way that Jesus is identifying what it means to be free and what the roots of unfreedom are. Like historical ironies aside, Jesus' point is that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And this, I think the sin here in, in this specific passage is more than your kind of generic all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God kind. You see it, and I think, a blazingly clear manner towards the end of that little piece in 8. It's a kind of classic John trick to oppose Jesus against the legalism of the Pharisees. But, I don't know, it's like a, the prequel to the brothers Karamazov here, basically, right? The, re- the religious authorities are in the real presence of the incarnate Savior, and they're arguing that the, Jesus, the incarnate Savior, is breaking God's law. And there's this big choice point there. So the choice point, basically, that, that pops out in 8, to me at least, is the two opposing answers to the question, who's your daddy, as the kids say these days. When Jesus says, yes, you are slaves to sin, what do they say? Abraham is our father. But when Jesus presses them on whether or not they're legitimate sons of Abraham, whether or not they're following the mission of Abraham, what do they say? Only God is our father. That's a pretty important point of confusion. That only is not, you know, incidental. And it's not just about, like, mixing up biological and theological and parental fatherhood. 
it's kind of the bigger existential question for the Pharisees. You know, do you identify, understand yourself, inform your, is your story about yourself that you are a son of Abraham, or are you a son of God? Do your own kind of habits, concepts, practice, social position, govern the choices that you make, or are you actually open to the very direct presence of God incarnate? I mean, the, the interesting thing here is that, that they opt for Abraham first, it seems to me, is the sin. It's the Exodus cycle again. Though this time, instead of being Pharaoh's slaves, I guess, they've become slaves to their own vision of the religious tradition. And so they refuse to recognize who Jesus is. They kind of fall back on their own cultural sense of identity. This guy can't be the son of God because if he was, all the ideas that found the synagogue would be bankrupt, like Galileo all over again. Despite the signs, despite the direct fact that he's healed this blind guy, they don't recognize Jesus because to do so would cause them to shake up the certainty of the status that is afforded them in thinking about themselves as son of Abraham. And, and to me, that's Jesus' core insight here, isn't it? It's, I don't know, sin has like obvious overlap, and this is a very resurrection point, church, or church point, but sin has obvious overlap with questions of ethics and questions of morals. It has an over, obvious overlap with questions of love. After all, like one of the best reasons not to sin is to love God and your neighbor. But when we get away from the Sunday school vision of it, sin is not only about immorality, but for Jesus, most of the time, it's about unfreedom. Like the reason Jesus is worried about sin is not only that the world needs to be made right, but Jesus wants to teach his people to not be slaves to their own desires, their own preconceptions, their own frames for seeing the world, their own stories. Because those frames and those concepts and those predispositions and those stories shape how we engage the world. They make us unfree. That's the thing. Like, I don't know, you, maybe you have a different experience from me, but we kind of organize our experience in the world by telling ourselves stories about who we are. And those stories make the world make sense for us. But they also make us unfree. I mean, they kind of operationally define who we are and how we act, but they constrain who we can become. I mean, I do it. I see my kids do it all the time. I'm sure you do it. Like, I'm good at this. I'm not good at that. I, this is just how I am. I can't do this. I can't do that. Those kind of stories that we tell ourselves both make sense out of who we are, but they constrain and limit what we can be, how we can be transformed. So they make us unfree. And if you think about it, it's the most profound threat to freedom possible. It's more efficient than making you unfree in the way that, I don't know, Pharaoh might, because it provides you the illusion of choice, like you're just following your own gut after all. But it limits what you see and what you can do. And it's powerful because it's so hard to see, like Caesar was right there, you know. You can say, ah, Caesar's got troops there and Caesar's going to make me unfree, and of course Caesar limited their freedom. But the Pharisees, because they're kind of slaves to their tradition, are unfree in a much more profound sense. I mean, like, remember that whole thing we did, I don't know, ways back about nomos as law? Like, law is not just the written legal code, it's the set of conventions and, and the culture that you exist in. And part of Jesus's point is that that culture and those stories limit our ability to be transformed, limit our ability to see the character of God, limit our ability to love other people, and that's exactly what's going on in eight. That's the basic question. So Jesus has this argument with the Pharisees, and then in 9, almost immediately after, 
John 9 opens with Jesus making some mud out of spit and healing a man who is blind from birth by sending him to the pool of Siloam. And basically, like, the section that we read, it's like a Pharisee argument sandwich. There's an argument with Pharisees, there's a healing, and then there's an argument with Pharisees. Both arguments kind of happen to be about a text from Exodus. So the text today, the healing of the blind man, just kind of bookended with these Exodus references. And of course, if you're like a literary-minded type, there are lots of easy Exodus themes here. Some are abstract, like in both cases, water plays a big deal in making a person free. Both, both stories connect water and, or spit in pouring it on the ground. Jesus spits on the ground to create a sign. Moses pours water from the Nile to create a sign, yada, yada, yada. I mean, you can see all those connections. But, but there's more than that that makes this a beautiful rendition of the Exodus story. You all remember, and I think Trey did a sermon on this a while back, I've certainly talked about this too, that especially when it came to congenital illnesses, people would attribute the fact that you had some illness or blindness or whatever the thing was to saying that it was a physical malady that you had that, because it was a punishment from God to your parents or to you because of your sin. And there was this idea that people who were sick or people who were in some ways you know, not like everybody else were that way, and the Pharisees believed, because of their own moral failings or the moral failings of their parents. And, I don't know, I mean, that story likely determined the trajectory of their life. And talk about a vision of unfreedom. The blind man thinks that uh, the reason why things are as they are is because he's being morally punished for what his parents did or something that, that he had done. Now, if you remember the sermon... Um, last week from the signs to Moses, or the, we read the, the little section of 4 at the beginning, you recall Exodus 4, or 11. Moses says that he lacks the capacity to speak. What does God say back? God says, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, like, from there, it's pretty easy, isn't it, to say, well, of course, then, that the blindness and, in some sense, all maladies are a result of sin. But in the interpretation of Exodus at play here, it's really interesting. Jesus is kind of breaking the idea that a person and their story are determined by the condition of sin. And so in a weird way, Jesus is offering both the blind man and the Pharisees an exodus from their stories. And so like spit mud in the pool of Siloam, that's a beautiful exodus reference to unpack. Pool of Siloam was a big artificial reservoir in Jerusalem. Folks would get water in it. But it had this really specific role in the Feast of Tabernacles, which, as you all recall, was the feast where everyone would celebrate God bringing God's people out of bondage. But anyway, like the big thing about the pool, besides it was functional and nice for having water, is that on the key day of the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priest would go down to the pool and he would fill a golden pitcher with water for the sacrifices for a very specific reason. The reason why, to recall that God had delivered God's people from slavery. So, I mean, that's what the Exodus tie with the blind man is here. It's not just the spit and the mud mirroring the sign in Exodus. It's that Jesus then goes to tell the guy to wash himself in the pool that commemorates God's exodus, of the exodus of God's people from slavery. So if you think about it that way, all of a sudden we've got the Exodus motif, to me at least, remixed in a really powerful way. 
The Pharisees think they're righteous by birth, by virtue of their birth and their breeding and their culture. In fact, because they think they are righteous in that way, they are sinning. They have assumed their own condition of slavery by inhabiting that story and not seeing the signs. And not just because we all sin, but because they're slaves to their own story. I mean, they think that freedom from sin is a function of their inheritance, but they don't see, like Pharaoh. Later we learn they don't hear it. They are the ones who have been turned into slaves and denied true freedom by the character of that story. And then on the other side of the story, we've got a blind guy and one who on the grounds of the Pharisees' interpretation of Exodus and one who, as the conversation progresses, we can kind of infer, had accepted that he was blind and accepted that he was in this condition of social slavery and stigma and dependence because there was some relationship to sin by inheritance. And Jesus tells that man to go, well, he spits in the mud and rubs the mud on his eyes, and then he says to go wash in the pool that commemorates the Exodus. And the man, as a result, not only sees, but he's set free from his bondage. That's a beautiful reversal. And like the Pharisees are Pharaoh here. The sinning beggar is Israel, and it is the Exodus cycle over and over again, but it really changes the way you might think about the final liberator. See, this is not, Exodus is not just a story about people a long time ago set free from a tyrant. It is that, but not fundamentally. Fundamentally, it's like almost like an archetype of a god and who, who sets God's people free. And it's, a, it, it, it's also a story about what it means to be a child of God and that because we are made sons and daughters, we are not only set free from a tyrant, but we're able to see in a much more fundamental sense we're freed from our own story. We're freed from our own habits. And it's not we who are able to see, but rather sight that is given to us by Jesus. We are freed from ourselves and allowed to see the character of God because we become open to the presence of God. And instead of being defined by our own story and vision of what our lives mean, we open up to a new story. We're not simply turned over from the tyranny of the self to another angry tyrant, but we are As my favorite verse at Galatians 5 says, why does Christ set us free? He sets us free for the sake of freedom. The point of being released from your own story, from sin, from tyrants, from the way that you see the world and all those things is that you are set free to be open to and engaged in love and and kindness and goodness with other people because of the healing presence of Jesus. So like, that this interpretation of Exodus through the blind man contains a radical reversal of the idea of freedom that we have is a big deal. You know, you see how you've been made a slave to yourself. Jesus spits in the dirt and rubs the mud on your eyes and simply asks you to wash it off to see in full. Freedom here is not just the absence of an external constraint. It is a way of transforming yourself, a recreation of your being that allows you to see the world differently to take a step back from your own stories and habits and concepts and desires and frames for understanding. What Jesus offers us is not only exodus from the tyrant, not only exodus from Pharaoh, it's an exodus from ourselves and our own stories. And we only need to be open to the idea that we can receive the story and see it. And in doing so, the orders of sin and death are not only defeated, but they are made so that they don't constrain us or make us unfree. But that's the thing, like the Pharisees, for it to work, you have to see what sin is. You have to see how sin binds you. You have to see where to exit the cycle. 
the formerly blind beggar gets it. If, you, if we were to read the whole thing, which would have been too long, the first thing that happens is his parents bring him down to the temple. And there was a law about speaking uh, in heretical ways in the temple. So this exchange between the Pharisees and the parents, the Pharisees say, why don't you tell us why your son has done what he's done? And his parents are like, he's old enough, let him tell you. And so there's a first telling of the story from the blind man. And then we picked back up at the second one. But this relationship between his parents and kind of letting him tell the story is not insignificant. I mean, his parents are basically like, all right, well, you know, he's on his own. We don't want to be put in jail, so we'll let him tell the story. And it feels like, well, gosh, he's kind of cut off from his father. He's kind of cut off from his family. They're kind of leaving him on his own. And he is cut off in one sense, but in a more significant sense, he is freed from his obligations to his family and his social norms. He's freed from those ties and allowed to kind of claim his own voice. He speaks for himself. And he just rolls through the story and tells the facts. The Pharisees don't listen. They send him away. And apparently the Pharisees got debating about it, so they ask him back, and they accuse him of defaming God by telling the story of what Jesus had done to him. So verse 24. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. Now back to Exodus. He's a sinner because he's blind, right? But the guy gives the most beautiful response, and I want you to pay close attention to the grammar. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Beautiful. Whether he was a sinner or not, I don't know, but now I see. Small but beautiful details. Parents have cut him off out of fear, they freed him from the obligation to his family. They've, you know, he doesn't have to, have to follow that anymore. And now, in referring to his, himself, he uses the old him. He uses the third person. Whether he is a sinner, I don't know. But now, I see. He's given up that old story of the he that he used to be. And now he's claiming that it doesn't really matter because he has seen as a result of Jesus' healing, and he's been convinced, and now he is set free. I don't know. It doesn't matter because he says, now I can see. Amazing grace. He's been liberated from his tradition, from his family obligation, from his old vision of himself, from the expectations of the religious order, from the whole of the law of nomos, from the whole of the culture, and now he is simply set free to see and to say that he can see. That is being free from sin. They asked him in verse 26, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already and you did not listen. Note the Pharisees are also implicitly sinning by not listening because God, you know, back to Exodus. The Pharisees are the ones who cannot see or hear to hear. They're the ones who've kind of fallen into the trap of presuming that they're defined by their past and their culture so they cannot see the signs and so they revert back to what they do know what their culture and tradition have taught them. And they hurled insults at him. You are this fellow's disciples. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And they say, what? You're steeped in sin at birth, so how dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Like his parents, and kept kind of being implicitly cut off from them, his exile from the temple is also a path to being free. 
It's not that he has to abandon everything about his own story. It's that he now sees that he was made unfree by it, and he is open to seeing signs that create for him a new story. Jesus provides him with an exodus from the stories that he and the religious order used to make him profoundly unfree. And not only that, because he's set free from that story, he can see. We've had a bunch of discussions about what it means to see a sign, and a lot of Exodus is about what it means to see a sign. I think half of it is just saying that I'm not defined by the story that I tell myself about who I am or what I know, but instead I'm open to being transformed by the presence of Jesus. What is freedom here? What is absence of sin? It's a freedom to love God, to let God open your eyes, to see the signs by freeing yourself from the tyranny of how you define yourself, the transformation in the blind man comes from not really caring whether or not he was a sinner or describing his blindness as a result of sin, but instead embracing that Jesus had transformed him. And in being transformed, he can see and he can exit. He has provided an exodus that allows him to have a completely new relationship to his life, to the most radical form of freedom, to see, to love, and in doing so, to know the presence of God in Jesus Christ. Amen. Questions or talk?